Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. We are going through the book of Mark. Last week was Mother's Day, and we used the calling of Jesus' disciples, and Jesus specifically his calling to follow me as an example of what parents, and in particular mothers, are doing. Uh, They are showing by example how their children should follow him, and they are making disciples. And this week, we're going to be reading uh, verse 21 through verse 28. So I'm going to read that, we're going to pray, and then we are going to talk about it. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. I thank you for the incredible life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, as we are getting into now Mark's description of the things Jesus did and taught, Lord, I pray you would help us this morning to hear what we need to hear, see what we need to see. Lord, give us eyes, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And I ask for help to communicate the way that I should. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray in particular they hear the call of your Spirit, that you died for their sin. Lord, I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go over a couple things here to get the setting of what's going on in the ministry of Jesus. And by the way, I've not mentioned this from the pulpit yet, but I will mention this. How many of you are familiar with the series that is recently put out by Dallas Jenkins called The Chosen? How many of you you are familiar with it? I I really will uh, recommend watching The Chosen. You can get that through various different... um, Uh, online services, but The Chosen does a really good job of depicting uh, some of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And as I've talked to my daughters, they have really enjoyed it because when they hear about Jesus or they're reading, it's like they have a visual to kind of place the time and the place and the setting of what it may have looked like. Now, full disclosure, and The Chosen makes this disclosure, um, they, they, they are storytelling, so they're using the Bible as the springboard to tell the narrative story of Jesus, so there's things in the chosen that are not in the Bible, like did they camp here, and did they really do this with a fire, did they really have that conversation, well we don't know, but they were all together for three years out doing work, and John ends his gospel by saying, if everything that Jesus had done was written down. There wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill it up. 
So the chosen is very clear. It's not a replacement for the Bible. It's not meant to be that at all, but it's meant to give a visual. So with that said, if when you watch the chosen, it gives you a really good visual. I would encourage you to do so because going through the book of Mark, you'll be like, oh, that, oh, it's really, really helpful. So I just wanted to give that little plug. But I wanted to do that because you read over words like they went into Capernaum. Okay, well, what's Capernaum? So let's talk a little bit about the geography and about the scribes and about the setting because it's going to help us understand what happened here with Jesus showing up teaching in the synagogue and demons screaming because Jesus showed up in the synagogue. Okay? First thing, Capernaum, it's on the northwest, kind of like the way Seattle's on the northwest. It's in the northwest of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Galilee. So if you were looking at a map, you'd see the Sea of Galilee and you would see Capernaum up here. And it was right on the lake or the sea, whatever they, they interchange those words throughout Scripture. And we talked about this earlier. There was a ton of fishing industry there because Josephus records this and the Romans record this. They loved the fish that came out of that sea because there were unique fishes in that sea that tasted really good. And so uh, that was just a really unique and wonderful little spot. So there was a big industry for fishing, and several of the disciples, as we know, were fishermen. Capernaum also had a really nice synagogue. Here's something interesting to think, and it's not the way that we typically imagine it, but this was not just poverty-stricken villages where everybody's kind of mucking around in the mud just trying to survive. This was actually, I don't want to say affluent, but I want to say if you, we could use the word middle class area that was really nice and the synagogue was really nice uh, and because the industry there was good. There were jobs, there were things to do. There was a Roman outpost that was nearby. History tells us that this Roman outpost was actually oddly friendly with the Jews in that region to a certain extent, as much as any oppressor is with the oppressed. Uh, but they were, they were there, and they enjoyed the fish, and they, that wasn't a bad place to be posted if you were a Roman. So that is the area that the majority of Jesus' ministry takes place, is in the whole area of Galilee. And Capernaum, according to Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, it says it's his own city. So Jesus leaves hometown of Nazareth and sets up shop primarily in Capernaum. And from what we can tell, Jesus probably lived at Peter's house. So just give you a background and give you an idea of, of how Jesus' life and ministry may have looked. The synagogue that Jesus goes into, what is a synagogue? You hear about them all the time throughout Scripture the synagogue is not the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem at this time. Sacrifices were performed there. The priests were there. Synagogues were not the temple. Synagogues rose, arose uh, in, a, in a time where if you had ten Jews, ten Jewish men in a community, they would have a synagogue. Depending on how many Jews were in that city spread throughout the Roman Empire, would kind of depend on how nice that synagogue was. But a synagogue was a place for teaching. 
And the scribes are the ones that would teach. So when Jesus comes into uh, the Capernaum synagogue, he, as a guest rabbi, they would bring these guys in. He would come in, and the way it would work is he would get one of the scrolls of Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets or from the Torah, the, the law, and they didn't take... You just don't know how blessed you are that you have one of these, okay? They, you didn't have this at home. You didn't take the scroll home. The scroll was in a synagogue, and it was protected and you didn't touch it, and you didn't bother it, and the scribes would read it, and then they would expound on it. And the way that that worked, I found this fascinating as I've studied this, is they would stand up to read the Word of God. There are churches who do this today. And then once they had read it, they would sit down, including the rabbi, and then they would teach and expound on it. So it's just an interesting visual of the way that this community would have worked. So Jesus does that here. He goes in and talks. Now, the scribes that are also mentioned in here, what were they? They were basically lawyers. Varying degrees of education depending on the regions. But the scribes and Pharisees, you hear them mentioned all the time together, were teachers of the law, some of them with varying degrees of expertise, they were interested a lot in knowledge and prestige. Not that there's such a thing in our society today where people of various job descriptions are interested in being uh, important and prestige. That doesn't happen today, right? We have no frame of reference for that. There's no such thing as people who want to be noticed. No, that's not true. That's not even remotely true. Human nature has always been human nature. And scribes and Pharisees were the kind of people that were noticed for their religious piety and their knowledge. And primarily what they would do when they would preach a message, they would read, let's say, from the scroll of Isaiah, and then they would spend maybe hours expounding on this rabbi said this 300 years ago. This rabbi said this 200 years ago. They disagreed. This is another thought. Here's an, and they just would drone on and on, and they would incorporate some of the poetry of the day. Basically, they pontificated. They had flowery-sounding sermons and words. And there are churches like this today, by the way, where people are just more interested in trying to impress. And trust me, I feel that all the time as a pastor. It's hard you, you, you would have to try it sometime. If, if I made one of you preach next Sunday, you would feel sick to your stomach, right? There would be a lot of pressure like, what do I, I got to sound like I know what I'm saying, you know? And, and, but when you're a professional scribe, you want people to recognize, oh, he's just eloquent. Oh my goodness. He's pristine. That, and that's what they enjoyed. Now there were genuine scribes who genuinely loved the law of God, but there was also a real strong attraction to you being impressed with how much I know. So you, you got all this in your head is what's going on so far? One more thing I want to talk about, Jewish exorcism. What is an exorcism? Casting out a demon. Jesus is not the first person to cast out a demon. You don't hear much about it in the Old Testament, but throughout 
Jewish history, we've got a lot of literature on it, and actually in one of the Chosen episodes. If you've seen the Chosen, how do you remember when Nicodemus goes in to cast the demon out? Do you remember how weird that was? He looks over at the other Pharisee and says, I need this, this, and this. He needs formulas, literal potions, beads. They, they shook things. They had uh, different ways of uh, incantations, almost really like it's like Harry Potter, like magic spells, like Snape mixing up uh, some kind of potion. That is what they were doing in not only Jewish exorcisms, but other religious groups had all these formulas and things that they did to deal with demon oppression. Because demon oppression and demon possession was all over the place. Uh, I would argue that it still is. And, but more manifestations of it in a culture and a world that was more accepting of it. And they had ways to try to get rid of the demons. One of the key ways that you had to figure out a way to get rid of the demon was to get it to give you its name. Almost sounds like a comic book. But the idea was that if you could get them to give you their name, it was like somebody saying, uncle. Does everybody know that reference? You get the older kid in class, the bully, put your arm in the chicken wing, and he's not going to let you go until you say, uncle. Okay, well, that's kind of the idea in demon exorcism among different religious groups, including the Jews, that you, if you could get it to tell you its name, then you had some sort of authority over it. Here is what is really uh, interesting. Jesus, actually, in just a couple chapters, is going to ask a demon its name. Okay? Do you remember the story of the pigs and the swine? We're going to get there. Jesus asks that. That's the only one that he does, but he asks its name. So that's just something to put off uh, in, in the back of your mind. Uh, but also, there's... There's so many interesting accounts of Jewish exorcism. Jesus also mentioned, uh, mentions later that if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, remember the, Jew, the Pharisees said the only reason you're casting out demons is you're doing it by the power of Satan. Everybody remembers that story? And Jesus says, if I'm casting them out by the power of Satan, who, who are your sons casting them out by? Jesus just making a reference to the fact that exorcisms and demon issues were commonplace. But this story is not commonplace. It's not commonplace at all. So now I've set up everything. Let's go to verse 21. Just wanted to give you some stuff before we got into uh, the text that's going on. The very first thing it says that in verse 21 that I want us to look at uh, verse 21 and 22 is, he goes in on the Sabbath as the guest, he reads something, and Mark doesn't even tell us what he preached. But we have a pretty good idea what he preached, because earlier in chapter 1, it's already said he preached, repent and believe in the gospel, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he said back in uh, for, verse 14. We have a strong inclination. That's probably what he preached in the synagogue and tied that to a messianic text of which he is talking about himself. But there is something going on here that is completely different than what they're used to. They're used to scribes, like we said, 
droning on and pontificating with eloquence. And that is not the way Jesus talked. When Jesus talked, it says in verse 22, they were astonished at His teaching. They were astonished. That word means alarmed, amazed, panicked is one of the derivatives of that word. They were freaked out by His teaching. The title of my sermon is A Holy Hand Grenade. Jesus walks into the synagogue with a teaching that is a holy hand grenade and He lobs it in there. And it blows up. And they, Mark tells you why they were alarmed. They were astonished. For He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were used to long-winded exposition on scriptural texts. They were not used to someone with substance and power talking. The word authority is exousia. Ex meaning out of. Usia, it's, it's substance, it's power that Jesus is speaking out of a substance, out of something real, out of something concrete, something you can reach out and touch, something you can feel. When Jesus speaks, they were arrested in their attention. Oh! And I'm going to tell you, have you experienced that in a sermon before? I've experienced that before. Listening to somebody preach, and it's like God grabs you and just... You, you like can't look away. How many of you, raise your hand, you've experienced that before. It, it is an incredible thing when the Holy Spirit grabs you through a sermon and you, you're like, how does, why, what? And you hear things you've never heard before and you see things you've never seen before and it alters your brain and your heart and God is drawing you to Himself in a unique and powerful way. Now, I wish every Sunday my sermons did that. Alas, they don't. But every once in a while they might. God uses all kinds of preachers all the time to arrest people. Because it's not the preacher. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work through the Word of God. There is a key difference between Jesus and me. (laughs) He was God in the flesh. And so every single time he opened his mouth, he caused grenades to go off. Every time. Everywhere he went, grenades are going off. And this is the first example of an explosion that takes place. The very first thing that happens on this regular Sabbath day in Capernaum, probably smell the fish right outside the door. Just picture this really nice synagogue. This isn't a a dumpy little place. This is a nice synagogue. And Jesus is talking in such a way that everybody is alarmed. They have never heard anything like it. It is life-altering. And it's so life-altering that a demon speaks up. Let me read you something before I move on. This is from uh, William Lane, who wrote a commentary on the book of Mark. He said, Jesus' word 
presented with a sovereign authority which permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection, confronted the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. Whenever we are confronted with the power of God, even though we belong to God, we tremble in fear. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I I reference this all the time, but I love the image of John, the revelator in Revelation, who was Jesus' closest friend on earth. When he encounters the risen Christ in heaven, he hits the ground on his face, trembling. This is... This is His friend from His earthly ministry, but this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is overwhelmed and undone in His presence, and God's about to use Him to write a book of the Bible, and He is not even able to stand up. When we encounter God because He is holy and we are not, we are in awe and in fear of the King. There's a weird thing about the holiness of God. It simultaneously terrifies us and attracts us. This this is all throughout Scripture. Moses, when he encountered God initially, it was like somebody putting their toe in the water like this, the burning bush. By the time we get to the end of Moses' life, Moses is saying, I am not going anywhere unless you go with me and your glory goes. And God says, okay. And then Moses says, show me your glory. He, he gets to the point where he's in this, he's in awe of God, but he wants more of God. At this point, the people don't know what to do. They're just amazed at his teaching. They are in the presence of God in the flesh, their Messiah, and He's teaching them out of, out of the scrolls. This holy hand grenade of His teaching causes demons to cry out. I want you to notice, go, go to verse... 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That, don't mean, that doesn't mean he just shows up. That means he was already there. That means he would have been a regular person in the synagogue and he was demon-possessed. Why did the scribe's teaching not cause the demon to be upset? Because it wasn't with authority and power. It was religious pontification. It was religious gobbledygook. It was non-life-changing, non-life-altering, man-centered. And in that environment, the devil is easily comfortable. It's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Not even remotely concerned. But the minute Jesus shows up, now there's a concern. In fact, when we read this, you are going to hear this stuff. It makes me, it does make me emotional. It makes me emotional just the reality of who Jesus 
is that the demons were scared when he showed up. They were terrified. You know, I grew up, if I was, a, I was never scared of, uh, like, I watched Predator. I wasn't scared of that. All my 80s friends here. I wasn't scared of creatures or burglars. I wasn't scared of those things. But because I, we grew up and heard a lot about the devil, okay? We heard a lot about the devil. He, he gets magnified into something that he shouldn't be. The scariest, creepiest horror movies are always the supernatural ones, right? It's not, it's not Alien, which is scary because this thing's popping out of nowhere. It's, it's supernatural tinged movies. There's a reason those movies bother people who claim that they don't believe in the supernatural. <laughs> because there's an element of reality there. But this verse shows you that there is fear for sure, but it's not, it's the devil who's afraid. Not, not Jesus. The demon, when it sees Jesus in the synagogue, cries out. Look, look at verse, uh, the very end of verse 23. Uh, cries out. He cried out. This isn't quiet. This isn't, I have something to say, raising the hand politely. This is a scream. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you notice that he names him? Remember what I said about the name thing? Remember what uh, Jacob tried to do when he wrestled God? Tried to get the angel to tell him his name. Do you remember that? This name thing is a real thing. The demon is in some sense of desperation trying to get Jesus to say uncle. But he's doing it terrified because he then says, have you come to destroy us? This demon knows immediately this is not right. Why are you here? The demons recognize much more clearly and much more theologically precise than humans do, that they are in the presence of God and understand, oh no. Now the people are alarmed and panicked. The demon has a much deeper understanding of what he's being confronted with. And so he, he names Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Now how's the demon even know Jesus from Nazareth? Which is, if you look on a map, here's Capernaum and Nazareth is down here. How's the demon even know that? Well, it's a supernatural issue. I'm not going to try to explain. But he knows who Jesus is. And he knows something more than his geography. He says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. The demon recognized that Jesus was not a normal human being. The demon would have recognized, uh-oh, this is the Messiah. Because I am looking at a pure human being that is full of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is God in the flesh. The demon recognizes it and calls Him the Holy One of God. 
This is a cry of desperation and defiance and fear. Are you here to destroy us? In calling Jesus the Holy One of God, the demon expresses an accurate understanding of exactly who Jesus is. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe in God, you do well, the demons believe and tremble. This is an example of that happening. In fact, I would submit that James probably had this moment in his mind when he wrote that. The demons know and believe in God, that doesn't make them Christian. So the lesson of James is just having a casual belief in God is utterly meaningless. You have to have a saving relationship with God in faith that He is your Savior. So the demons believe and tremble, and here is a specific example. Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are, Holy One of God. Are you here to destroy us? You notice that it's a plural? Now, I read commentaries on this, and there's like a thousand different ideas. Does he mean that there's more than one demon in the man? Does he mean that the, all of the demonic kingdom? I think that he actually means, I recognize you're the Holy One of God, and when he says us, he means all of the demons. He means the kingdom of Satan. He's saying, is it over? Are 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 you going to destroy? Is it is it over? Are you restoring the kingdom of Israel? I, I think that's probably what it means. What we do know it means is is the demon is saying we are in trouble. Look at how meaningless his demand is. <laughs> Jesus does not answer his question. Jesus is the one lobbing the holy hand grenade. The devil has not even a water pistol. Let me make something perfectly clear. There is no such thing as yin and yang. There is no such thing as a cosmic struggle that is equal between good and evil, dark and light. There is no struggle. None. God does what He wants. He sits in the heavens and does what He pleases. Satan is meaningless in the struggle. Now, we are wrestling against, not flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, might. We have a spiritual battle, but the reason we can fight from victory instead of trying to get victory, everybody hear the difference there? We're fighting from victory, not to get victory. The reason we can do that is because God has already established Satan's meaninglessness. One, he disarmed him at the cross. Two, he's God and Satan is nothing. He's a creature. You might as well say that there's a struggle between you and the G.I. Joe men you were playing with. The G.I. Joe men, you use them and whatever you're using them for, and God has purposes and is using Satan all the way up till the end. But there is no struggle between me, my little 
Did I have a Deathstro? No, I didn't. A Deathstro, I, had a, I, had the orig, I had the Cobra Commander. You had to save up all those tickets to get that. There, there's no, there was no struggle there. None. Sometimes you get this thing in your head like, oh man, there's this battle between God and Satan. No, there's no battle. Now there's a battle between you and Satan. And you are empowered by the God who has no battles. He is the victor. He is the king. Does that make sense? You and I have a fight, but we're empowered by the king of the universe to fight. There is no fight between God and Satan. Because look at how Jesus uh, responds after he cries out. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Now the ESV translates it that way out of politeness. Jesus really said, how many kids are in here? Okay, You know what Jesus really said? He said, shut up! That's what he said. I know, Arwen will tell you that that is a cuss word. Because you're not allowed to tell people to shut up. Because it's not polite. But if you're talking to demons, you can tell them to shut up. And that is what Jesus did. He said, be silent, shut up, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out. There is no argument. There is no dispute. There is no struggle. There is no nothing. Jesus said, shut up and get out of here. And that is exactly what happened. This is not the way Jewish exorcisms were performed. That's why I was talking about them earlier. They had formulas and incantations. They'd used fish and burnt them in a specific way. There was all this stuff that they did. And Jesus just said, shut up and go. You see, you see the difference? The holy hand grenade was lobbed into the synagogue. The holiness of God was on display through the teaching of the Son of God. And a demon freaks out because he has not seen ever the power of the Holy Spirit present like that in the synagogue. What are you here for? Jesus says, shut up. Get out. And he goes. That is a powerful moment. It is a powerful moment because he didn't need beads or burnt fish or anything else. He spoke and the demon listened. Now what do you think you are thinking as a Jewish synagogue attender? Not only did Frank over here turn out to be demon-possessed, which you were unaware of, not only would that create an issue, but this guy's teaching that everybody was riveted by, alarmed by, provoked the demon to speak through Frank, your buddy, and now the demon is gone. You would do what they did. Verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? That sounds like something we might all say. What is this? What did we just see? 
a new teaching with authority. Do you hear what the point of all this is? The teaching of what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God and His right to be declaring the coming of the kingdom of God is what is being solidified in His authority when He cast out that demon. Because the very next thing the people say is, He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. This teaching was marked with a stamp of approval by the power Jesus demonstrated over that demon. By just commanding it to shut up and leave. This totally rocks everybody. By the way, the word amazed here in verse 27, it means terrified and astonished. It's the kind of feeling you have when you encounter something that you can't explain, but just saw it. When the Aztecs encountered the Spaniards, and they were on horses, if anybody's read this history, they had no idea that they were looking at humans. They thought they were gods. They had never seen horses. So men on horses looked like some kind of creature they had never seen. They were amazed at what they saw. They were terrified. They had no frame of reference for what they were seeing. They have no frame of reference here. Jesus is speaking to them like a prophet would be speaking to them. They had read about the prophets. Now they were experiencing not a prophet. The prophet. The Messiah. Jesus. cannot wait to go to heaven and get to see the video of this stuff. I, w- I want to see what this looked like. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible. I'm like, okay, I just, we're going to, I want the holy VCR. I'm sure it's a VCR. I want the holy, I want, I want to see. I want to watch. Verse 28 tells us um, what the point is of this first really coming out party of Jesus. And at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The people are amazed. They're terrified. They're astonished. His teaching is carrying the weighty substance of heaven's authority. They can feel the power in His words. The teaching that He gave on the kingdom of God is verified and solidified and authenticated by His ability to tell demons to do what He tells them to do and they do it. They leave talking. His fame is spreading. Let me give you a couple takeaways for us. The gospel message today that we preach, though we are not Jesus, that that arrested the hearts of people every time He spoke, you and I have to have faith that the gospel 
message of the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to everyone who believes. Number two, if you go lobbing holy hand grenades into this world with the gospel message, it will cause an explosion. You are going to have people who love to hear the truth. And you are going to have people who hate to hear the truth. And you are most certainly going to provoke the devil who will not want any of us to proclaim the truth. And do you know how effective he is today? I'm not saying that there are not demon possessions because there are. But it is way more effective just to play havoc in your brain to make you feel like, don't say anything because they'll think you're a weirdo. Don't say anything, they'll think you're a fanatic. Don't say anything, you'll lose your job. Don't say anything, you don't want to cause trouble. Church, when we read the Bible, we are going to see that Jesus created a mess everywhere. He was lobbing hand grenades all over the place. This is just the first one. Mark is just a series of explosions as we go through here. Number three, no matter the mess, no matter the mess from the hand grenades that we throw, listen, I'm not talking about hand grenades of ugliness. I'm, just, I'm talking about the power of the message of the gospel. No matter what mess it creates, God will be glorified. His fame will spread. So be bold and be encouraged that this same Jesus who stirred up the synagogue, both men and devils, is with you. Like Mandy's testimony, He's with you to do the same thing. Follow Jesus, become a fisher of men, toss loving gospel hand grenades this week, wherever you go. There is my application for us. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's stand up. We're going to receive communion together. We have got weeks and weeks and weeks of talking about Jesus. And I am super excited. You know, as we get ready to take this together, the ministry of Jesus was all pointing towards this supper. The, the ministry of Jesus and these, the teaching ministry of Jesus, the healing ministry of Jesus, the commanding demons ministry that Jesus had, that we're going to see almost every week, you're, we're going to hear more about that, that's what he did all throughout the book of Mark. It was all leading towards, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the blood of my new covenant 
Take and eat and drink this. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you do it. It's, it is a powerful, powerful reminder for us that we belong to this Messiah. We belong to the King of the universe. We belong to Jesus. And what He did for us is why we belong. He died, His body was broken, and that is the bread. That is the point of the bread. The cup is His blood. It, the point of the cup is that it cleanses us from sin. So this morning, I'm just ask everybody to bow your head with me if you would. The, I think communion is a wonderful time for us to confess our sin to God and say, Lord, forgive me for where I've messed up. And in particular, if you don't belong to Him, this is a meal for Christians and this is a meal that means that you're accepting that Jesus died for you. If you don't belong to Him this morning, you should say, Lord, I want to belong to You. I believe You died for me. I believe You were raised from the dead on my behalf. I believe your, my sin is covered by Your blood. Be my Lord. You just All you've got to do is call on His name. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Father, we thank You this morning for everybody that's here and everybody watching online. God, we thank You for the power of Your Word and for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God, draw us in closer. Teach us from Your Word as we go through these Gospels. But as we take this meal together, God, we thank You for Your blood. We thank You for Your broken body for us. And we declare You are our Savior this morning. And we thank You. Let's take this together. Lord, I pray that You would inspire us this week. That You would give us opportunities. Send people across our path. Send us across the paths of others. That we would be instruments in Your harvest. That we would speak Your Word boldly. That we would not be ashamed of the Gospel. But that we would have opportunities to share it with friends and relatives, people we love, our neighbors. God, help us to do that. Give us opportunities to do it. And we pray that there would be a holy explosion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.